0: I love road trips. It's always fun to get out of town, have some good music for the road, snacks, and one of the best road trips that I have ever been on, in fact it is the best road trip that I have ever been on, led me and my friends right into an old-fashioned train robbery. The staff at the church that I used to pastor in Texas went on a road trip staff retreat. Someone in the church has a house in the mountains of New Mexico, so the four of us, Matt, Tim, and Clark, and myself, we loaded up a truck and we hit the road for a 12-hour drive. And it was a great road trip. We each told extended stories of how we met our wives And we listened to a lot of satellite radio, particularly the station Coffee House, perfect background music. But it was when we stopped at a Dairy Queen in Clayton, New Mexico, that changed our lives forever and created a bond between us that even our wives don't quite understand. It was in that Dairy Queen in Clayton, New Mexico, that we met a real old-fashioned train robber. Mr. Thomas Edward Blackjack Ketchum. Of course, we didn't actually meet Blackjack Ketchum because by that time, Blackjack had been dead for over 100 years. But we were introduced to Blackjack Ketchum that day in the Dairy Queen in Clayton, New Mexico as we were filling our drinks. On the wall, right next to the fountain drinks were several pictures of Blackjack Ketchum, but these weren't just any old pictures of Black Jack Ketchum, these pictures were actually of him being hanged on the gallows. So right there as you're getting your drinks were these before and after pictures of Black Jack Ketchum being hanged for a train robbery. Now we were confused as to why this Dairy Queen, out of all the pictures and posters and paintings in the world that they could put up, why would they display the hanging of a man right where you get your fountain drinks. And so out of curiosity, we went and asked the staff working there why these morbid pictures were hanging up, and they briefly told us the story of Tom Blackjack Ketchum. And so we left, and we were curious, and we got out our iPhones and went to Wikipedia to find out everything we could about this man named Blackjack Ketchum. And what we discovered on our road trip was that he was a cowboy and an outlaw who lived in the 1800s. He was a part of the hole-in-the-wall gang, and he would often hide out and rob travelers. He would also rob trains, and just like his brother who was with him, and that's what eventually led to his death on the gallows in Clayton, New Mexico in 1901. A failed train robbery cost Blackjack his life. These were the final words of outlaw Thomas Blackjack Ketchum. As the noose was placed around his neck, he said this, Goodbye, please dig my grave very deep. All right, hurry up. And with that, he died. His death was actually a lot worse because once he was hanged, he was beheaded through the process. And so you can see why this was such a weird thing to to get your drinks. And there's these before and after pictures of Black Jack Ketchum dying that day. But that's why those morbid pictures were hanging up in that Dairy Queen. Because Thomas Blackjack Ketchum was hanged in Clayton, New Mexico for an attempted train robbery. And that's one of their claims to fame. And so Matt, Tim, Clark, and myself spent hours on that road trip looking up information about old Blackjack Ketchum. And on the way back, when we drove back through Clayton, New Mexico... We went and found where he was buried, and we made a stop at Black Jack's grave. And like true Texans, we poured some Dr. Pepper out on the ground in honor of his memory, in honor of our homie, Black Jack. Road trips. That was the best road trip that I've ever been on. Good times with good friends, and we even made a new friend in Black Jack Ketchum on that road trip. The truth is that people have been taking road trips since the beginning of time. You don't get too far in the Bible. In fact, it's the third chapter of Genesis where you have Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden on the very first road trip, sadly, away from the presence of God. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the Israelites took a 40-year road trip through the wilderness. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that in the Mosaic Law, the Israelites were required to make three road trips every year to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Three times a year, God required the nation of Israel to go on road trips to Jerusalem to worship, and he gave them a soundtrack for the road, the Psalms of Ascent. These songs were the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of satellite radio, if you will. I remember what we saw last week, the the Ascent Psalms. Psalm 120 to 134 are the songs that the ancient Israelites would sing as they made their pilgrimage to worship Yahweh during their three main festivals every year. So as they made this journey towards Jerusalem, these are the songs that they would sing. These psalms are little snapshots, little films, little pictures of, of their lives. They are... Films for radio, hence the title of our new series. So take a moment and imagine that you live in ancient Israel and you and your family start walking to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three festivals. And your wife is with you and your six kids, and you have a few animals with you. And as you make your way towards Jerusalem, you walk through valleys and deserts and over mountains and steep with steep drops all the while aware that robbers and bandits and outlaws are hiding, and they might jump out and rob you. You know that as you make your way to Mount Zion, there are blackjack Ketchums out there waiting to rob you, waiting to stop the train that you are on and pull a good old-fashioned train robbery. And so what do you do? Well, let's fast forward to today, and it's the same. What do you do when you're scared When you are worried, when you face the unknown, when you wonder what awaits you in the future, what do you do? Well, Psalm 121 will teach you to connect your problems with his promises. To connect whatever it is that you are going through in your life, whatever trial, whatever form of suffering, and to take that situation and connect it with one or more of the promises that are found in God's word. Psalm 121 was written for children who think there are monsters under their beds or in their closets. And it was written for adults who fear what the future holds. Psalm 121 was written to be sung at the scariest moments of life. And on our journey in this life, on our journey to the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, Make no mistake about it, Grace, we will face dangers. We will face darkness. It's unavoidable, actually. Faith encounters troubles. It has to. Faith has to encounter trouble on its journey. Now, on top of that, our own flesh will conspire against us, and we will be tempted to fear and worry on the journey through this life. And our enemy, the devil, will do his part to see the great train robbery of our souls happen. It's easy to look at all of the unknowns of life and all of the knowns and allow our souls to experience a train robbery. It's just so easy on this journey to have our joy stolen, to have our peace stolen, to have our our souls robbed of peace. And that's why Jesus, in his grace and love, gave us Psalm 121. To give us hope when we feel like we are on the verge of the great train robbery of our souls. Jesus gave us Psalm 121 to help prevent the great train robbery of our souls. Jesus gave us Psalm 121 to remind us to connect our problems with his promises. And that's exactly what the psalmist does here. Now, as I mentioned before, if you're new to the Old Testament or new to the Bible, when you see the, the word Lord or the name Lord there in all capital letters, it's the translators letting you know that in the Hebrew Bible, the original language, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So you're going to hear me say Yahweh, and that's, you'll see that with the all capital letters. So look at Psalm 121, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of Yahweh. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Now remember what I mentioned last week. The Psalms of Ascent are set up and there are three sets of five. And they follow this pattern or this journey as you go through them. In the first of each set, in the first psalm of each set, you encounter a problem. In the second psalm, it talks about how Yahweh is able to help and to intervene and save his people. And then the third psalm is a psalm of worship where they have arrived at Mount Zion at Jerusalem. And so that's the pattern. So here we're in number two of the first set. And now the psalmist is letting us know how Yahweh is the one who, is, who will provide him with that help and with that care and protection. Psalm 121 was written so that believers could be reassured of Yahweh's presence and his ever-ready promises as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship. And so they would actually sing the gospel to one another as they made their way to Jerusalem. And the first thing you'll notice here is that the psalmist is preaching the gospel to himself. He is rehearsing the gospel in verse 1. He's reminding his own soul that his help is not in anything of himself, not his gifts, not his skill, not his swagger. It's all in Yahweh. Now, why would the psalmist be afraid? Why is he tempted to fear? Why is he afraid in verse 1? Why is he scared? It's because he looked up to the hills. He looked at his surroundings, and that started a mini panic attack. His his heart started beating fast. He started to sweat a little. Why? Why? Because he most likely has his family in tow with him, and he's worried about what's hiding in the dark. He's on a train, if you will, traveling to his destination with his family, and he's worried about train robbers. See, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was fraught with danger. The terrain was deranged. There were slippery paths and loose rocks and and steep valleys. You could fall off a cliff. Can you imagine taking a rambunctious four- or five-year-old boy on this journey? I mean, they're going to do something stupid, right? Sit back. So you could slip and lose your footing and slide down the side of a rocky mountain. But there were also robbers and bandits and gangsters. There were ancient Near Eastern outlaws like Black Jack Ketchum and the Hole in the Wall Gang. And you were worried that they might put a hole in your head. Plus, there were snakes and wild animals, so anyone making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem would be tempted to fear as they started their journey or at any point on their journey. And so the psalmist preaches to his own heart here in verse 1. He reminds himself that his help comes from Yahweh. But notice that the danger is not specified in Psalm 121. Where does the emphasis lie throughout this song? It lies on Yahweh's ability to keep and to guard and to protect his people. The emphasis lies in Yahweh's covenant-keeping nature. The focus in this song is on God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. As we'll see in a moment, the word watch or keep or protect is used six times in this psalm. And five times the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used. So make that connection. Six times the word protect is used and five times Yahweh is used. And so you connect those two words and what do you get? You get that Yahweh protects, that Yahweh guards and watches over his people. And that's a promise that is just as relevant today as it was back then. And so the emphasis in Psalm 121 does not lie in detailing and explaining whatever the problem is because it does not matter what the problem is. It could be dangers from gangs or gorillas. Dangers from slipping or sleazy thieves. Dangers from snakes or snake oil salesmen. The focus is on this one central truth. That Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, will always be faithful to his promises no matter what we face, no matter what we are going through. And so the psalmist here spills more ink on God's character as the covenant-keeping God in this song because that's really what matters. The subjective nature of verses 1 and 2, what we are going through, is met with the objective truth about God in verses 3 through 8. And so there's a lesson to learn here. The subjective natures of verses 1 through 2, what we are going through in life, what we are suffering, our trials, it's met And it's connected with the objective truth about Yahweh in verses 3 through 8. So more ink is spilled on God's character than what the psalmist is going through. More thoughts, more words, more prayer, more focus, more conversations, more energy should be spent on the objective truth about Yahweh rather than what we are experiencing And so the psalmist preaches to his own heart in verse 2. He says, my help comes from the Lord. The Hebrew compound preposition in the phrase here, my help comes from the Lord, is literally, my help comes from with the Lord. And it could be translated, my help comes straight from Yahweh. Our help comes straight from Jesus. No angel, no messenger, no Western Union telegram, no delivery by train, no pony express, not the Texas Rangers. It's personal. The psalmist's help comes straight from the throne of Yahweh, straight from the triune God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Hebrew word that is used here for help is often used in the Old Testament for Yahweh's intervention on behalf of His people to provide for them what they were lacking or to do for them. What they could not do for themselves. Now who does that remind you of? Jesus. Jesus comes and supplies what we are lacking. He supplies the righteousness that we need to be able to stand in Almighty God's presence. Jesus is the one who justifies sinners and declares them righteous. Jesus is the one who forgives our sins and we're adopted into his family. So, Yahweh's intervention on behalf of his people to provide for them what they were lacking and to do for them what they could not do for themselves is relevant to the psalmist at hand, but it also points us toward Jesus as well. So, the idea here is not just merely help, it's that the psalmist would not be safe at all if he did not get this help. The psalmist needs outside help, he lacks the ability to pull this off. No amount of swagger. And no six-shooter can help him when train robbers hop aboard to steal his joy and peace. And so the psalmist gets the help that he needs, not just from some local deity, not from some local god. As his train made its way to Jerusalem, the psalmist would look out the window and he would see the hills and see the high places where other peoples worshipped other gods. He would see them worshipping other gods. In other words, the psalmist would be on the turf of other gods as he made his way to Jerusalem. He was behind enemy lines as he sojourned. He was in the wrong part of town many times. But Yahweh was with him. And Yahweh is not like these other local gods. Yahweh was not some ghetto deity from some backwoods town in Israel. No, Yahweh is the sovereign God who made everything in the universe Yahweh is the one who made the very hills that the psalmist sees and through which and around and over he walks the trees that pagans would cut down to use in order to shape some idol to worship, who made those trees? Yahweh the sovereign Lord the clay that was shaped and heated up to make some small figurine to worship, who made the clay? Yahweh did, the stone that was cut to make a little amulet to ward off evil who made it? Yahweh The God who made Saturn with all of its rings is the God who was helping the psalmist. And he's the God that is helping you right now, Christian. He is the God who is with you right now. Whatever it is that you are going through right now, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Christian, your help comes straight from Jesus. But do what the psalmist does and connect your problems with his promises. Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, God looks that we should spread his gracious promises before him. God is never better pleased than when his people importune him in his own words and urge him with arguments taken from his own promises. Find a promise in God's word and just spread it out before Him and say, You promised you would do this, do this, intervene, help. It says, Nothing pleases God more than when we do that. So, whatever it is that you are going through today, connect it with the promise from God's word and spend more time in thought, in conversation, in prayer talking about jesus i need help to do this i need more help in doing this i'm really good at just talking about everything i'm going through the problems the situations what i'm facing and i kind of come along and sprinkle a little jesus on top i need help pray for me that in my conversations i'm weaving jesus in and out throughout those conversations connecting those problems with his promises and if you do that that will build your faith as i said earlier Faith has to encounter troubles. Faith has to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Faith has to walk through the bad parts of town. It has to. But we don't have to fear when we do stroll through the ghetto of some false God, some false truth, some problem that we face on our journey. Of course, we do fear, though, right? We do fear. The psalmist is acknowledging that in verse 1. He looked to the hills, and he felt that surge of panic. He is just like us, and we are just like him. We do fear. We do get afraid, and that's why fear not is one of the most common commands in the Bible, precisely because we do fear. Why is that in the Bible so much? Duh, because we fear, right? It's true. Dangers surround us that do cause us to lose hope, do cause us to lose our peace. That's life in a fallen world. Yes, sometimes life just happens, and before you know it, you look up, the train has stopped, and your circumstances are trying to rob your soul of peace. But you can have hope, because your help comes straight from Jesus. When you're scared, God is there. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is there. And sometimes you have to buckle down, And preach that truth to your own heart. You have to connect your problems to his promises. You have to preach the gospel to your own heart. And sometimes you need other people to preach it to you. Look at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The lyrics of this song now switch and we realize that this is a duet. We get the change from the first person in verses 1 through 2 to the third person in verses 3 through 8. And so we get the church now rallying around the psalmist in verses 3 through 8, and they address his subjective needs. They address his subjective fears with the objective reality of the truth of Yahweh. They they connect his problems with Yahweh's promises. Looking in at verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So what these other travelers are doing is preaching the gospel, preaching the good news to the psalmist. This is a a gospel caravan, if you will, making their way to Jerusalem. And they come alongside the psalmist, and they remind the psalmist that God will not let him slip on the journey. In fact, they even call his attention to the Lord's care by using the Hebrew word Hene which is, usually gets translated as behold. They're saying, behold, to the psalmist. Come here and look, see for yourselves. Open your eyes and see how Yahweh never sleeps. Open your eyes and see that his eyes are always open and they're watching you. That's the idea behind the word behold here. And behold, come and see for yourself. Enter into the story, psalmist, and see how God is caring for you. And if the psalmist is not to slip or stumble, that means that Yahweh would have to be watching him every step of the way, which we know that he would be. It's like what John Calvin said, so numerous are the dangers which surround us that we couldn't stand a single moment if his eye did not watch over our preservation. But the true security for a happy life lies in being persuaded that we are under divine government. True security, the happy life, is being persuaded that we are under divine government. Yes, we might stub our toes on the journey, but we are under the watchful eye of Jesus. This is what Jesus does for us as we make our journey through this life. He preserves us. He keeps us. He upholds everything by the word of his power, which is what Hebrews 1.3 says. says, The humbling truth is that we could not stand one single moment if Jesus was not watching over us. We would crumble, we would break, we would slip, we would stumble. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is upholding everything in his creation, everything in the universe by the power of his word. It's like on The Force Awakens. You remember at the very beginning when when someone shoots at Kylo Ren and and he takes that blaster and makes the blaster shot just hang in the air? You remember that? He just, using the force, or by the word of his power, he just makes that blaster shot just hover in the air. That's what Jesus is doing. He's keeping us. He's preserving us. And it gets as practical as him keeping your legs working properly gets as practical as him keeping you breathing as you sleep at night. Oh, do not be deceived. You do not sleep well at night because you worked hard and you're exhausted. You do not sleep well at night because you took some NyQuil. Oh, contraire, brothers and sisters. You sleep and your lungs keep working while you sleep without any effort on your part precisely because Jesus the King keeps your lungs functioning that ought to make you sing out the doxology or the words to amazing grace. And it definitely should humble you. Amazing grace, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Grace will lead us home because Yahweh is watching over us. Yahweh keeps us, we are told. The Hebrew word for keep, which is used six times in this psalm, means to watch over, to care for, to protect, to guard. It's actually the same word that's used in number six for that Aaronic blessing that would be prayed over the nation of Israel and over worshipers. The Lord bless you and keep you or watch over you or care for you or protect you or guard you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And that's exactly... What the people are praying for, for the psalmist, as he journeys towards Jerusalem through many dangers, toils, and snares. And that's exactly what the high priest would pray over the psalmist as he was making his journey back home through many dangers, toils, and snares. He would pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you and watch over you and guard you and protect you and care for you. May he make his face shine upon you as you're traveling back home. But here's what I love about this song. This Psalm 121 has a little bit of an attitude and I, I like things with a little bit of attitude. The gospel caravan who are speaking the gospel to the psalmist here, they're also taking a jab at Baal, the god of the Canaanites. That's what they're doing in this psalm. They're poking fun of Baal. I love that. It's probably an allusion to 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah told the prophets of Baal that they should wake up. Remember the story? He says, do you need to wake him up? Maybe he's off relieving himself or maybe he's taking a nap. Wake up your God and have him intervene and answer. Have him bring down the fire. Baal apparently likes to take naps. And so Elijah was poking fun at them And that's what these people are doing in Psalm 121. It's a a polemical poke at Baal, the God of the Canaanites, the God whose territory the psalmist was most likely walking through on his journey to Jerusalem. The point is that as the psalmist makes his way to Jerusalem to worship, he looks up to the hills, and as he passes through Baal's neighborhood, as he passes through Baal's turf, the psalmist would be reminded about that one time in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Baal's people needed him the most and he didn't come through for them because he was taking a nap. He would be reminded of that time on Mount Carmel when Elijah pointed out that Baal was off sleeping somewhere. But that's Baal. He likes to take naps, but not Yahweh. Yahweh never sleeps. Yahweh never slumbers. Yahweh never dozes off. I thought about this in the first service I was preaching, and I was going to say it, and I didn't, but Jesus has never hit a snooze alarm. He never sleeps. Well, in his incarnation, maybe he would have hit snooze. I don't know. But the point is that God never sleeps. He never has to just, uh, just let me hit snooze one more time. He never does that. In fact, God never takes his eyes off of you, Christian, which is exactly what the gospel caravan tells the psalmist in verses five through eight. They say, Yahweh is your keeper, Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The gospel caravan making their way to Jerusalem now remind the psalmist that Yahweh never takes his eyes off of his children, not even for a second. They are preaching good news to the psalmist that Yahweh is the one who keeps us and watches over us, protects us, and surprisingly attends to us. Yahweh is the sovereign Lord. He's the God who made heaven and earth, and yet he humbles himself and attends to us. That's the idea with the phrase, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. Old Testament scholar Alec Motier translates it this way, Yahweh is your shade in attendance at your right hand. In other words, it's God who stoops down to care for us. The sovereign one of the universe attends to our needs. And that's certainly what we see in the incarnation. That Jesus came to save us, to help us. he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God's care is so comprehensive for us. That's the idea when it speaks of the sun and the moon here. It's that it's round-the-clock care. It's 24-7 coverage with Jesus. You're going out and you're coming back as all under his sovereign care. He will keep you from all evil. Of course, that doesn't mean that we are exempt or immune from troubles. We will suffer in this world. Psalm 121 acknowledges that. Psalm 121 reminds us that the promise is not the absence of suffering, but the promise of real protection, real care. When it says that Yahweh will keep us and protect us from all evil, it's not saying that we get to live a life free from pain, free from suffering, free from sorrow. It's just saying that in general terms, Yahweh, God is the one who is caring for us. And even when we do suffer, it's all under his providential care. And so whatever you're going through today, let me encourage you to connect your problems with his promises. Spread out his promises in prayer before him and ask him to intervene. Connect your problems with his promises. Connect the pressures that you are facing with his promises. When you feel like the train of your soul is about to be stopped and robbed by outlaw emotions and by renegade thoughts, connect your problems with his promises. You don't have to be afraid of the dark, Christian. You don't have to be afraid of the future. You don't have to be afraid of the unknown. You don't have to be afraid of the black Jack Ketchums of this world. You don't have to fear when the train of your soul gets held up. But understand too, we can't go at it alone. We need a gospel caravan to travel with on this journey through life. Psalm 121 teaches us that our walk with God, our journey to the city to come, it is a community project. We need people. Listen. Me and Jesus and my Bible, that's easy. You know why? Jesus doesn't bother me. It's other people that bother me. You stick me on the beach with the Bible and me and Jesus, he ain't going to bother me. I'll be frustrated at my own sin, but he will comfort me. But it's being around other human beings. That's where my heart is exposed. Our walk with God is a community project. There will be times when you don't preach to your own heart, when you don't connect your problems and the pressures that you're facing with God's promises. And this is where your church family comes in. It's the church, the gospel community that speaks to the psalmist in verses 5 through 8. They are speaking to him. They are praying for him to believe these truths about Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. And so we're called to come alongside and speak life to people, encouragement, gospel promises. But sometimes when you do that, there's no response, right? Sometimes you you want to encourage someone who's discouraged, and it just doesn't stick. And so you you have to pray. Don't give up on the encouraging and the speaking to people, but sometimes they don't respond right away, and so you have to pray for them. Verse 7 actually in the Hebrew could be translated as a prayer. It's may the Lord do this. So sometimes you encourage, and then you walk away and you pray, or you pray right then on the spot for them. Understand this, Grace. Ray Ortland says this that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Gospel doctrine on paper and shared with one another creates a gospel culture, a culture of good news. And this is what is happening on the journey in Psalm 121. They're having promise driven conversations about Jesus. And when a church has promise driven conversations about Jesus, it creates a promise driven church. If we have no doctrine, no theology, no gospel, we will be a weak church. We'll have a weak culture here. There will be no culture, no good news. And if we don't have a gospel culture here, then our doctrine will all be personal. It'll be all about what I'm learning. Just keeping it for myself. What we want to do is allow our belief in the gospel to create a culture that is a true gospel culture. We want to create an environment, an atmosphere here at Grace that you can do what the psalmist does in verse one. He acknowledges his fears. He acknowledges his struggles. And what does the church do here in Psalm 121? Do they shame him? Do they say, I can't believe you struggle with that. I can't believe you're afraid. Come on. They don't do that. We want to create a culture where you can share your fears and your struggles and what you're tempted with and not have people say, I can't believe you struggle with that. No, what they do in Psalm 120, they rally the covered wagons and they come alongside the psalmist and they walk with him through his struggles and they connect God's promises to his problem, his problem of fear. That's what a gospel-centered church, that's what gospel culture looks like. Gospel doctrine, what we believe about Jesus, creates gospel culture. We don't just want to be a church that says, preach the gospel to yourself. And we say that here. Preach the gospel to yourself. We also want to preach the gospel to one another. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is simply telling one another over and over and over and over again what Jesus has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Let me repeat that. Discipleship is simply telling one another over and over and over again what Jesus has already done for us through his perfect life, through his perfect death, and through his perfect resurrection. Discipleship is about connecting what we know about Jesus to one another. You've heard our tagline here at Grace if you've been here for a while. We say that we want to stay busy making disciple, making disciples. Well, guess what? Psalm 121 tells you how to do that. Here's how you stay busy making disciple, making disciples. You come alongside someone. You encourage them. You share gospel promises. And then you pray for them. That's it. We can do this, right? You can do this, can't you? Can you come alongside someone? Can you encourage them? Can you share gospel promises with them and then pray for them? That's it. That's discipleship. You can make disciples. Just share gospel promises with other people and pray for them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's discipleship. You just do what they're doing in Psalm 121. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. We want to take the doctrine that we believe and move it from the paper that it's printed on and write it on people's hearts. We want to preach the the gospel to one another in a community, in a family, where no shame is allowed. That means no guilt trips. Now, please let me repeat that. We want to preach the gospel to one another in a community, in a family, where shame is not allowed. No guilt trips here. No shame, no guilt trips, no how could you? How could you do that? No how could you? but instead a whole lot of how could he, how could Jesus be so good to sinners like us? We want to be a church that connects our problems to God's promises. We want to be a church that is on a journey together to see Jesus. And sometimes outlaws and bandits stop the train that we're on and they want to rob us of our joy and peace. And when that happens... You find, like I did last night in John 16, Jesus saying, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What he's saying is that on your journey now, on your journey to the city to come, you're gonna have a lot of sorrow on your journey. But he says, there's coming a day when you see me again, And you will have eternal joy. And no thieves and no outlaws will take your joy from you then. But right now, we experience that sorrow. Right now, the peace and the joy, we have the temptation to have it robbed, stolen from our hearts. And so what do we do? We just simply start talking about Jesus when that happens. Imagine what this place would be like if we did this. Imagine if we started being like the church, the gospel community in Psalm 121. Guess what? This place would change. Why? Because we would be talking about Jesus all the time. Tell me, is it a bad thing for a church to talk about Jesus all the time? Isn't this what it's all about? Isn't he what it's all about? Why do people find it strange that churches and disciples talk about Jesus all the time? Sermons should be about Jesus. Not here's seven things you can do to be a good neighbor. I don't need to hear that. I can read that on the internet. I can read that in a book. All the Bible knowledge that I need, I can get somewhere else in a commentary, a book, a DVD series. What I need to hear every single Sunday morning, and I suspect it's you too, is I need to hear about Jesus because I'm in in verse 1 of Psalm 121, and I'm scared, and I'm fearful, and I need someone to tell me it's going to be okay. Let me tell you about Jesus. And so why do people find it strange that churches and disciples and sermons are always about Jesus? To me, it's weird if you are a church or a Christian and you don't talk about Jesus. That's weird. The Twilight Zone is not weird. That's sci-fi. What's weird is Christians and churches who never talk about Jesus, who don't make Jesus the point of the service. That's weird to me. Here's the bottom line. When we connect our problems to God's promises, what we are doing is connecting others and ourselves to Jesus. And that's what this table is about that's spread before us. The Lord's Supper is one big promise to us that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. It's here at the table that we connect our sin with his righteousness. The table before us, the Lord's Supper, reminds us that number one, Jesus was hanged on the gallows for our sin. They dug his grave deep, which was the wish of Black Jack Ketchum. But Jesus came back from the dead. He came out of the grave. And number two, the table reminds us that the law, God's law, says to each and every one of us, be perfect. Be without sin. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law. God's law. So the law, God's law, stops the train that we are on and it demands that we be perfect. The law stops the train that we're all on in the journey of life and it puts a six-shooter to our head and it says, be perfect. Be without sin or else. Listen, there is a wanted poster for you. The law, literally and figuratively here, is looking for you. But you can run to Jesus today and he will save you. You can repent and cry out to him and trust, and he will save you and forgive you of your sins and give you the righteousness that the law demands of you and give you the righteousness that you need to be able to stand in God's presence. Let's pray and we'll prepare our hearts to be connected to Jesus once again and to feast on his promises. Father, we do acknowledge The law, your law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, God, it just levels us. It, it, it knocks us off our feet. It sweeps the leg and takes us out. We're not perfect. We are sinners. And so we acknowledge that even this week, Father, we, every single one of us, had sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions, and sinful motives driving all of that, God. And we acknowledge that this morning. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Father. And we thank you for Jesus, who was perfect. He never sinned. He lived the perfect life that your law demands. He did it, Father, to the power of the Holy Spirit. He died the death that we all deserve because we are sinners and you raised him from the dead validating his perfect life and death. And we thank you for that, God. Without him, we have no hope. And so we turn our eyes to him now, Father. As we eat and drink, Would you encourage our hearts and give us fresh strength for the journey, Father. Renew us. Remind us how much you love us. And may we leave here today celebrating and saying, what a Savior. How could he he do this for sinners like us? And then may you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.